Hello and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is Dimitri Alperovich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, my guest is Danny Moore. He runs a threat intelligence team at a major tech firm, and he's the author of a new book just published titled Offensive Cyber Operations, Understanding Intangible Warfare. Danny is also formerly with the Israeli Defense Forces. He was a cyber operator there, and he holds a PhD in cyber warfare from King's College of London. Danny, good to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's talk about the cyber war that we are seeing or not seeing in this conflict in Ukraine. A lot of people are writing headlines and uh, op-eds and media articles saying, where's the cyber war? Why is it missing? Um, obviously, there's a lot that we don't know about what has happened. We've seen some attacks take place, some wiper attacks, a very consequential, in my view, uh, attack on the Viasat uh, a company um, that uh, impacted satellite communications uh, in Ukraine at the start of the war. But what has and hasn't impressed you so far about the Russian cyber activity in this, uh, in this war? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, the headlines are pretty pretty wild. From uh, wild stories about how cyber warfare plays a large role, all the way up to uh, the cyber war that wasn't. I think that was a, uh, a Financial Times headline a little while ago. I I got to be honest with you. I think the biggest the biggest thing we can take away is this more than anything else. This is a crisis of expectations, right? I think a lot of folks expected this to be the first true slugfest between two countries where cyber will definitely come into play and finally realize the promise of cyber war that everybody was looking forward to for the last 20 or so years. But that didn't quite materialize, not because we didn't see anything, but because, again, it just didn't live up to people's expectations of what cyber warfare should look like, which is really at least partly what we're seeing and partly is just unrealized potential. So if if I look at uh, Russia versus Ukraine, it actually lives up pretty nicely towards what I would expect the Russians to try and accomplish and actually accomplish. And, you know, you've, you've probably heard me say this a couple of times before, I, I didn't expect that much to happen. Um, and if we look at the full scope of what Russia attempted to achieve throughout this conflict from day one all the way up to what we're seeing now, uh, it, it truly is what you would have thought you would see. So it, you start off with the Viasat hack, I think the most uh, well-publicized strategic cyber effect, or at least attempted one, to, to actually alter the course of conflict by impacting command and control or communications or anything like that, uh, at least supposedly that point is contested. But let's say that it was what it said on the tin. So this is probably an operation that took a significant amount of preparation. It requires specific expertise to target the satellite modems, but it, it, it is still quite sloppy, which is exactly what I would expect the Russians to do in that context. Uh, they can have a lot of technical capabilities to bring to bear. They can uh, carefully uh, pre-position capabilities and then massively overshoot shoot their goals by uh, crippling quite a few more modems than they had intended to. So, well, But hold again, on a second, Danny. Hold, hold on a second. So you're right. It was sloppy. It was noisy. It had collateral damage, right? Uh, it disabled modems uh, in Germany that were connecting uh, wind farms and other equipment um, to the internet. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they failed, right? Um, 
you know, from a Western perspective, this was a United States Cyber Command action, for example, um, you know, a lot of heads would roll or there would be disciplinary action or some sort of consequence likely because you would you would hit um, an unintended party. But it's not clear to me that in Russia they actually care at all about that consequence. Um, they certainly have not suffered any blowback from it. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if it meant that they were able to do the operation on the cheap, um, do it much faster, uh, it seems like they would consider that a win. No? So this is a great question, and I hear this quite often. What does it matter that they overshot? Because it's true for other operations that we've seen in the past from them, right, where they had a far more aggressive effect than they had intended. And it's true that there's no visible consequence to this. But from a military perspective, a lack of capability to truly control the effects of your intended operations is a sign of weakness of control overall, because it means that you cannot guarantee that you achieve your objectives and not impact other things that might be significant to you. So in this particular case, the knock-on effects were, whatever, I impacted some wind farms in Germany. In other instances, a lack of capacity to truly guide the effect that you were aiming for can mean that you also failed to deliver. This is what we've seen with Ukrainian energy grid attacks, right? Uh, later on, a couple of years later, I saw the report from Dragos that said that they actually significantly undershot they had intended to achieve a much uh, larger effect and failed. So it's true for overshooting and it's true for undershooting, the lack of capacity to do exactly what you intend, which is at least for strategic effects quite significant, can make the difference in actually doing what it is that you wanted to. So it might not be as important for wipers, but if you're trying to actually weave something into your operational tempo, it can can be quite important in the long run. But in this particular case where they shut down, you know, tens of thousands of modems across Eastern Europe, many of them in Ukraine, and uh, at least uh, from the earlier reports, although the Ukrainians are starting to deny it, but from the earlier reports, this has had a significant effect on their communications, and uh, when done in conjunction, as we know, with the EW to jam uh, field communications and radio communications, the Ukrainians have reported, that this has been reported in the Washington Post and other places, that they were pretty much blind in those first hours and even days of the conflict. And cyber clearly had a role to play there with this Viasat hack. So it, it actually seems to me like one of the most consequential cyber attacks uh, conducted in history uh, in terms of its effect on the battlefield, no? So I wouldn't necessarily disagree with this. That's why I don't relate to uh, the Viasat hack as an outright failure because it did have an effect and it was uh, coordinated with the early stages of conflict. And that, in that sense, it sort of delivered. What I'm saying is that even when they succeed, they do so in such a, a noisy, diffused way that it is uh, distinctively Russian and uh, signifying how they operate in other spaces where they're less successful. So if you do look, first of all, if we're talking about the set of strategic effects that they could have achieved, having done at least as far as we know, and visibility is limited, just this, it is possible that in other instances they have tried to achieve effects but undershot again. We do have evidence that in other instances they failed to deliver their intended effects because, again, that operational sloppiness played its part. So it is true that they delivered. Uh, first of all, we don't know if it, they 100% delivered the level of effect that they have intended. And perhaps, for example, a bit 
more of a nuanced approach could have caused a lengthier, longer-term disruption that could have been more significant, or that penetration through the motives into their intended C2 networks could have done even worse uh, had they had the capacity and the patience to do that. So yes, successful effect, probably one of the most visible ones that we've seen. But again, it's not necessarily about what you do, but it's about what you could have done, right? We're talking about expectations. And I saw the, uh, the, some of the talk recently uh, that was in CyberWorkCon this year about the wipers, right? And there were loads of operational failures associated there. They either didn't activate them correctly, they shut themselves in the foot, things like that, which is, again, exactly what I would expect. So I'm not saying that they're incapable of delivering any success, just that they hamstring their own potential because they mask immense technological and operational capabilities with that last mile sloppiness that often takes them down a couple of pegs. And we should be uh, careful that, um, to clarify here, that we're talking about the GRU, Russian military intelligence, that's been uh, responsible for vast majority of all these attacks. And they've traditionally been a very sloppy cyber actor. The same cannot necessarily be said for other Russian cyber intelligence agencies um, like the SVR, for example, that was responsible for the SolarWinds attack um, that was actually um, executed fairly well um, up until um, they got caught uh, hacking into, into uh, Mandy and FireEye. But what do you think they could have done that they hadn't done in the cyber domain vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine? And, and, you know, we have to be realistic here that, you know, when it comes to probably weapon systems that Ukraine has, there's probably not a lot that you could do to them in cyber because they're mostly, at least in the beginning of the conflict, were old Soviet systems that, you know, like the D-30 howitzers that don't even have chips in them, much less a network connectivity. So you're not going to attack it with a cyber weapon like you might, for example, a more network platform that the United States would have, right? Right. And, and I'll caveat that there's a lot that we don't know about what the Ukrainians, for example, are using as part of their strategic backbone, right? But uh, I would argue that were they to develop access to sensitive Ukrainian military networks and then action them in some meaningful way could have been uh, a great way to achieve impact and essentially confuse the defensive efforts. That's one piece. Um, the other piece, which I think you know, we talk about uh, Russian information operations quite often, but really the the failure of the overarching Russian influence campaign to drive the narrative of this conflict is one of the biggest failures that they've had in this particular war, right? Because this is something that they traditionally invest quite heavily in. They view cyber operations as part of a broader spectrum of influence operations. And in this particular instance, their failure to contain alternate narratives and to steer how the war is going is one of those key things that actually galvanized a global response. So how, how much of that do you think was due to what the United States had done by outing their plans to create false flag operations uh, that would justify the war and as a result um, uh, really take away that that weapon away from them uh, and force Putin to launch a war without a pretext? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think there was a concerted effort to try and diminish uh, competing false narratives for the conflict ahead of time. There's also some level of partly unspecified defensive efforts that might have you know, taken some, uh, some potential operations out of the equation early on. And uh, those things certainly make a difference. But there were things that it was simply a Russian failure to contain. The fact that they at least reportedly lived off the land when it comes to uh, 
uh, Ukrainian information infrastructure meant that they couldn't truly suppress comms in the areas that they were in. So all the various, uh, you know, cell phone footage uh, of them losing horribly in a variety of ways is both demoralizing, but also galvanizing to their enemies, right? So if they had any notion of, of truly trying to create a narrative, the first thing that you would try to do is suppress information coming out of the field. And this was before all the Starlinks uh, rolled in, though you can do things with those as well, presumably. Um, Russians do have extensive electronic warfare. I'm sure if they put their mind to it, they could. Um, but yeah, the, the failure to control even the information coming out, not just the narratives that they're creating, but the narratives that the other side is doing just through what comes out of the battlefield, that would have made a huge difference. You know, one one of the things that strikes me is that uh, forget trying to suppress information from the enemy. They're failing in a massive way trying to suppress information coming out of their own forces. You know, the videos are coming out on Telegram and other channels of uh, the mobilized personnel complaining about their uh, equipment and and lack of uh, um Warm clothes and the like uh, is is quite demoralizing, uh, both to new people that are getting mobilized and uh, and their families back home. You also have videos that they are shooting of you know their own losses and um, the HIMARS strikes that uh, are destroying their equipment. You'd think that at least they would be able to suppress that information and make sure that people that are being deployed in combat zones are not use, are allowed to use cell phones. Exactly. And this is, this is again, this is part of the overarching sloppiness. It's a culture, right? And you see this dating all the way back to the very early days of this in 2014, when you had, you know, the, the reports of the little green men kind of crossing the borders, and you would literally see themselves tagging themselves on, on Vicontacte and, you know, with their unit mates in full gear uh, around various, like, milestones that identified their location. It was pretty obvious at a fairly early stage what was happening and at that time it was smaller so it was more easily contained perhaps but it's that same lack of discipline that permeates every single thing that they do which prevents them from truly living up to their potential we, we should clarify that uh, v contact is is a basically a russian version of facebook um, uh, social media platform that's very popular in russia you know, the one thing that really surprised me in this conflict in the cyber domain, I'm curious um, whether it surprised you, Danny, is the lack of retaliation against the West. I certainly expected that once the severe sanctions and export control measures would be put in place on the Russian economy, that there would be a widespread retaliation uh, in the economic sphere, both cyber and non-cyber trade restrictions, for example, on critical materials that we continue to buy from Russia, like aluminum and nickel and uranium and um, uh, titanium and, and other metals. Uh, and uh, we haven't seen any of that, of course. Uh, and uh, we've seen some energy blackmail uh, against the Europeans. Uh, but that was about it um, on the gas front, not even on the oil front. And uh, we have really seen very few cyber attacks being directed against Western infrastructure from Russian or Russian-affiliated actors. Were you surprised by that? That's a great question. I, I haven't considered that deeply, but if I, if I think about this, it's probably not altogether too surprising. It looks like, at least to uh, an observer relying on whatever telemetry that we have, that this is 
pretty much an all-hands-on-deck scenario for the Russians. They have clearly exhausted whatever they had available early on and are now trying to make the most of it, right, by launching various opportunistic attacks against um, uh, targets in Ukraine. They're pulling all kinds of malicious software, uh, some of it very bad, some of it sort of okay. But it really seems like a... uh, spaghetti against the wall approach when it comes to this conflict. It is possible that just the vast majority of their offensive resources are tasked in trying to make some kind of a difference in this conflict. Uh, and whatever is residual just doesn't just doesn't even register. So if if one has to direct resources where they're likely to make a difference. Myself, if I were uh, an observer of Russian strategy, I would say that attempting to use whatever resources I have to target the West is highly unlikely to make any kind of deterrent effect on on their policy and trajectory, right? So at least you can try and, and gain some tactical advantage in the course of the conflict. So you, you're you're making a, scar, a scarcity based argument that maybe they just don't have the capacity to do both, right? And and that's why they would prioritize Ukraine. I'm not sure I agree with that because obviously you have, in addition to pretty sizable cyber forces in GRU, uh, you have other intel agencies that you could potentially task for that uh, job, like the SVR that really has stayed out of this conflict for the most part. Um, but but on top of that, you have state affiliated actors that you have some level of control over like various ransomware gangs and the like, that you could either directly task or implicitly indicate that the West is now fair game and you could see you know huge spikes of ransomware attacks and, and the like against critical infrastructure. My personal view is that this is actually a conscious decision uh, by the Kremlin not to escalate because of concerns uh, over a response from the West. Uh, obviously, they're concerned just as we are about escalation in this war, and they do not want to see us supplying long-range missiles like um, ATACMS uh, to Ukraine. They don't want us to uh, to get directly involved in this fight. So anything that would potentially trigger a response from us may actually be more de- detrimental to them than helpful. Possibly, but I- I'm not entirely convinced. This This is... We're still talking about a government in a country that seems largely unperturbed by carrying out fairly overt sovereignty compromising operations against other countries, including trying to murder people in the streets of their cities and so on uh, with very flimsy covers. So, But but that was before, right? That was before the war. Uh, Things have changed dramatically. I don't know that it makes that much of a difference in their threat model. I think there is a class of of attacks that they could carry out that would reasonably not trigger that kind of escalation. I'm not talking about going after the energy grid in the UK, of course, that's naturally escalatory. But if you're if you're looking, first of all, the whole notion of signaling through cyber is very touchy at best. But uh, if you were trying to do this, there are ways that you can try, right? And to be clear, I'm not saying that there isn't anybody who isn't tasked with doing things in other countries. I guarantee you that the SVR has vast intelligence requirements uh, across a whole number of topics in, in uh, Europe, the United States, and elsewhere. So I guarantee you they're very busy. I'm just not sure that they're prioritized for offensive operations because either those resources are tasked or it's just not worthwhile. Uh, I just don't see the, the utility necessarily as as answering this with that, right? There needs to be some kind of, not proportionality, but applicability of what you're trying to do versus what you're trying to solve for. So, Danny, if you were in charge of the GRU cyber unit, what would you have done? 
<laughs> am, I, am I advising the Russian military now? And <laughs> at a high level, obviously, we don't want to give them any tips. But uh, at least in the in the initial part of the conflict, um, that we're well past now, um, is there yeah. something you would have done that the Russians have not done? Uh, yes. So a couple things. First of all, uh, deep penetration of Ukrainian military and civilian administration networks in order to disrupt the flow of uh, information, especially in the first few days, that would disrupt uh, coordination and even just the capacity to uh, transmit an all-clear signal, like we're okay, we haven't been overtaken. That's one piece. Uh, Second would be a, a suppression of Uh, comms in any area where there's active fighting, any civilian comms should be largely inoperable. So that information, even if it does leave, leaves at such a delay to make it essentially uh, irrelevant to the course of conflict in that particular region. And then uh, operational discipline of my own folks would need to uh, go up a couple of notches. So making sure that anything that we carry out is actually achieved to the letter. And you mentioned SolarWinds before, right, which is a great example of something that they got right almost to the very end, where they went after one of the most well-known security companies on the planet, hacked them, and tried to issue a a, a multi-factor authentication token on their own network, thereby creating such a compromise that they were rolled up all the way up to their original point of compromise, blowing the whole thing. So even there, in one of their most significantly successful operations, they just were so close to get it and botched it at the last mile. So I would change well, the screw, screw ups that. happen, right? And, you know, <laughs> that, that's not exactly. usual. And and frankly, you know, SolarWinds began quite a bit earlier, right? So for um, over a year, no one was even aware of the effects of this operation and the level of compromises that they were able to achieve. That's right. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating operation. It is so incredibly clever. It is representative of just the sheer levels of uh, creativity and forethought that they are capable of. Just picking them as a target requires a lot of research to understand that they are the ones, like breaching this you know, weird random IT company would eventually net you access to hundreds of critical organizations in the public and private sectors in target of interest, right? That requires forethought. And then compromising them requires work. And then doing it in a way that is silent enough and and, uh, inconspicuous enough, that requires thought. So it is quite clever. And and we should also clarify that the examples you just cited of what you would have done uh, if you had been in charge of the GRU may have happened, not not the limiting the um, uh, use of uh, cell phones by your own forces, but at least impacting military communications in Ukraine, maybe even civilian communications. It's quite plausible that they did do that, and we are not aware of it because the Ukrainians obviously don't have any interest in, in disclosing that. But the one thing that really surprised me, Danny, that I thought they'd for sure do is try to shut down internet communications across the country. The fact that Zelensky is able to put out videos every night, the fact that you have so much information that's coming out about what the Russians are doing uh, in Ukraine, the atrocities that they're committing, uh, is just remarkable to me. And I would have thought that they would have gone um, and attacked kinetically, at least, uh, the internet exchange points and other infrastructure that brings internet connectivity into the country. And I was quite surprised that that didn't happen. Were you? I was very surprised. This is the whole, what I was mentioning around suppressing uh, civilian communication. It's 
it's fascinating that this wasn't a top priority. Now, I've heard various claims about this. One that was uh, that they actually quote, lived off the land, and this is that they require this infrastructure to be in place for their own forces to communicate as their encryption gear wasn't wasn't up to snuff and they weren't able to use it effectively. So they had to fall back to using Ukrainian infrastructure to communicate between their own forces. If that's the case, then that's uh, Well, yeah, so ideal. we look pretty deeply into that. And, and what happened is it was actually a failure of planning because a lot of these forces seem to have rolled into the country without crypto keys. So they did have encryption uh, gear. They had uh, radios that could communicate securely, but without crypto keys, they're they're not very useful. And uh, because most of these units thought they were going to training, they didn't bother to grab uh, the crypto keys and distribute it to other units that you need to communicate with. So they were uh, they found themselves in the country unable to communicate except. Uh, by seizing civilian phones and trying to make calls with them. Um, but that changed after the loss of the Battle of Kiev and then redirection into the Donbass, where they are using mostly secure communications. And the fact that even in that phase of the war, um, they had not um, attempted to shut down Internet across the the country, I thought was uh, really remarkable. I agree. It is odd. I would have expected this, um, and not just uh, internet, but even just uh, cell service, all of it really, just the capacity to communicate within and across those regions would have been uh, basic because SATCOM is limited. Uh, It can only provide for folks who have the capacity to use it, and it's rationed. So even for satellite communications, there are things that you can do to limit its reach and utility. It does surprise me to this day that this is not a primary target for them. Now, do you think that the cyber part of this conflict might evolve? This war is looking likely to drag out for quite some time. And what's changing now, of course, is that the Ukrainians are starting to get Western equipment, somewhat quite advanced. So, for example, the new air defense systems that they're getting from the United States, the Norwegian-made air defense systems, um, NASAMs. The, the NASAMs, too, actually have network cap- capability using the Link 16 protocol um, that is widely used within NATO to interconnect different platforms. We don't know if um, the Ukrainians are getting that version of the air defense systems, and we don't even know if Link 16 is going to be enabled. But um, as these systems are becoming more networked um, that the Ukrainians are receiving, and, for example, the HIMARS have capability to be updated over the air uh, with firmware updates, um, do you think that will create opportunities for Russia to uh, conduct other sorts of uh, cyber operations against those weapons platforms? So I think it creates opportunities. Uh, the question is, will they actually make use of those opportunities and use it well? So a couple of things do work in their favor. First of all, Western uh, weapons platforms uh, are notoriously riddled with uh, security vulnerabilities and other software issues. They also tend to make overly convoluted software because everything has to be connected to everything else and support any number of possibilities to talk to other networked hardware somewhere in the world uh, because of various NATO considerations. That creates a lot of potential vulnerabilities. And some of these could be years old, and some of these might be newer, especially in the newer platforms, but they are there. And if I was um, if I was Russian decision makers, I would absolutely prioritize developing uh, exploits and capabilities against these networks and um, 
and platforms over the course of many years. So in theory, they might have some strategic capacity to do something about this. Now, the question is, are they actually capable of making use of this? Because I, I'm certain that they have the technical acumen for it. They have certainly had the time to research it, were they inclined to do so. They're, they also have the benefit, or relative benefit, of uh, this conflict dragging on for so long that it actually gives them, again, a renewed window to carefully develop access and capabilities against more strategic targets, which usually take a long time to cultivate when you're trying to do something like that, in contrast to like the wipers. So the building blocks are there. The question is, considering uh, their operational difficulties, are they actually able to capitalize on this? And importantly, will they choose to? Because th that if you do have that capacity, it could be a strategic asset uh, for potential use in some other context. So the notion is, do you expend this for the equity, right? Do you, you treat this as an equity? Do we expend it for this? And if you do, are you actually uh, good enough operationally to pull it off when you need it most? So I'm not sure about that, whether they're actually able to execute on the promise of what this could deliver, but the opportunity, yeah, it's there. But of course, uh, you know, exploits are just software, right? And anyone who has written software in their life knows that you, it's not just about writing code. It's about testing that code because it never works on the first try and certainly not for exploits that are significantly complicated pieces of software. And it presents you with incredible challenges of how do you test that exploit code, right? Let's say you, you, you develop a prototype of an exploit for uh, a NASA's, NASA's um, air defense system, unless you have it, um, and you can test that code in, in the lab on an actual system, you're never going to know if it's going to work or not, and chances are it won't unless you've, you've gone through a very rigorous testing process, right? Uh, you know, famously, with a Stuxnet worm that was used to attack the Natanz nuclear power plant, uh, the fact that the, uh, the Iranians were using the centrifuges that uh, were based on the Pakistani design, AQ Khan's network, um, that um, uh, we were able, the West was able to also grab uh, from Libya when Libya disarmed in 2003, um, if you assume that uh, Stuxnet was a Western project, presumably those centrifuges were very helpful in testing Stuxnet attack code. But, um, you know, for the Russians, they don't have HIMARS systems, right? They probably don't have NASM systems. So how do you build exploit code for something that you don't have the hardware for? That's a great question. And ideally, it would be best to have a copy of the equipment that you're trying to affect so you can actually see it full cycle. But it's not entirely necessary. So if you think about, for example, uh, Triton or Trisis or however you want to call it, um, they did partner with a local research institute with subject matter expertise to recreate some of the circumstances that would allow them to develop uh, bespoke exploit codes. So, so, tri so Triton, to explain to our listeners, was an attack on a oil refinery in Saudi Arabia that has been attributed to, to Russia, um, but it, it, they attacked a safety controller, a safety system in that oil refinery that presumably is... is uh, uh, fairly easy to find uh, through commercial sources, and Russia has its own refinery, so it probably has that equipment, right? It's quite a bit different trying to procure Western equipment. Right. So so what I'm saying is that they have, as, as a basic step, they have the capacity to acquire and then implement uh, 
equipment in order to facilitate more complex attacks. Now, what you need is then the actual equipment, right? Now, the point is you don't need a full HIMAR system. You need something that gives you, for example, some of the modules that are shared across different categories of equipment. So if we're talking about some communication protocols or uh, telemetry protocols that are widely used in US military hardware, uh, some of it is potentially acquirable through various means and sub and sort of uh, uh, other countries that you can either smuggle a unit of some kind of like you know ten year old radar or whatever. Another piece is that if you were to compromise, as in intrude upon some of the many 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 defense contractors that supply the various layers of uh, hardware and software manufacturing that go into these systems that are often highly complex with dozens of vendors supplying them, uh, you could get, for example, a functional copy of the software and how it operates. So you might not have the entire system, but you don't need to compromise, for example, high Mars top to bottom. You need to create some kind of effect within the network, for example. So yes, it would be ideal, but not 100% necessary. You can, and they, they know how to, you can get creative and potentially have enough so that you cr can create something that works. Whether or not they do it is a whole other matter, but it's possible. So security by obscurity is not great in this scenario, right? No, no. And, and honestly, the, the quality of software that comes out of many of those contractors is sometimes not ideal. They don't index on security as a parameter for their for their outputs, right? They want to get it out as fast as they can for as cheap as they can uh, and deliver on their contracts. And security is something that's difficult to measure and often uh, baked in as an afterthought. And you see that in many, many reports coming out about uh, Western military hardware. So I... I would gather that if you did get a copy of that software, it probably doesn't look too good. So, Danny, you mentioned earlier CyberWarCon, which is uh, one of the best cyber conferences run by our mutual friend John Hallquist um, here in D.C., and you presented at that conference a year ago um, a very disturbing talk where you looked at open source materials, GAO reports, and uh, other reports on vulnerabilities in major U.S. weapons platforms like the F-35, and what you found was just absolutely frightening. So talk a little bit about that presentation and your findings. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to take uh, topics in cyber warfare that aren't often explored uh, and, and bring them to light. And what I did was essentially uh, prove how bad things are through government accountability reports, which are depressing and sad and often boring to read, but they have some incredible insights in them. I looked essentially at various uh, high-stakes U.S. military projects, including some of the main shipbuilding exercises that they're going through, some of the major satellite component pieces that they're putting into place in satellite networks, but also and most importantly, some of the flagship defense projects that they have, like the F-35, which is absolutely my favorite and how terrible it is. And even from the standards of the U.S. Government Accountability Office, which is already severely limited in how many resources it has to audit anything, let alone uh, the cybersecurity components of defense equipment, they essentially rate the vast majority of, uh, or not the vast majority, but huge swaths of U.S. military equipment, the most recent bits of it, as what they call not survivable in combat conditions, which means that they expect it to enter conflict, but not exit it. Uh, they, they, and, and, they and that's cite, not what you want to hear about a weapon no. systems that you're going to rely on. 
No, and they specifically cite severe software vulnerabilities as one of the key reasons why equipment is not survivable in modern circumstances. So one of the the examples that I love to give is the F-35, uh, one of the most highly networked uh, pieces of hardware that's out there. Now, it has and had over the course of the last decade so many horrific vulnerabilities and, and just sheer software issues that render the entire plane essentially unstable. Uh, and there are various incidents like the plane rebooting in mid-flight or losing uh, visibility into all of its radar systems, all of its telemetries uh, uh, going haywire. And then that's, that's just talking about the plane itself. There are arrays of support systems that are used to maintain a fleet of F-35s. There is one system called ALICE, which is the uh, Autonomous Logistical Information System, I believe. Uh, and that's what used to essentially control the status of a wing of F-35s. So it, it tells you the equipment status, whether it needs repair, how, when was uh, last maintenance taken, and all that. Essentially, it, would, it, it is what tells you if uh, a plane is good to go. It is so uniquely awful that they try to cancel the project twice because it was just so riddled with issues and vulnerabilities, but then realized that they don't actually have the capacity to do that and then said, actually, never mind, we'll just keep using it anyway, despite the fact that it's awful. This is, this is the state of things. And that is just what gets found by accountability. So can you, can you give a couple of examples that you found that if uh, you compromise Alice, what, what could you do to a Winyo F-35s? Oh, absolutely. There were uh, a couple of things that actually literally happened, like a, uh, a reporting error within uh, Alice that essentially grounded an entire wing of F-35s because they weren't allowed to fly. There were other issues that actually caused uh, somebody to incorrectly load a bomb, causing the door, the bomb bay door to uh, to fail, and it almost exploded because it was incorrectly loaded. So there were other issues where a plane was cleared to fly when it wasn't actually eligible to fly. So imagine masking maintenance issues in a fleet of warplanes because you have control over that system. It, it, it governs everything on board that, that piece of uh, flying kit. So And, and of course, the, the F-35 is such a complicated piece of equipment that you can't just go back to paper and uh, and pen uh, right and 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 try to abandon using software if you think it's unreliable it, it just won't work with an f-35 no and I'm sure that it's relatively safe but are you actually able to do anything with the plane can you trust what it's telling you when you're in the air are you going where you think you're going are you are you targeting what you think you're targeting are you talking to who you think you're ta talking to all those things rely on really intricate and often poor quality software uh, that's governed by other poor quality software somewhere else, uh, the issues are pretty vast. So I mentioned Link 16 that may be now in Ukraine uh, because of the Norwegian air defense systems. Have you looked into security of that network protocol at all? So Link 16 suffers from the same thing that the internet suffers, which is it's very old and wasn't initially meant for modern security. So what that means is that 
they try to bake security after the fact with encryption and control mechanisms and all that. But at the end of the day, Link 16 is today, even though I think it was made in the 70s, it is what you would call a, uh, a lowest common denominator protocol because it facilitates, for example, communications between various NATO allies that are operating different types of kit, right? So if you have a hodgepodge of uh, military hardware operating in the region, you, you often fall back to Link 16. Also, just older gear like uh, uh, F-16s and the such uh, don't have some of the newer protocols, so you use that. Um, so we're talking about a positively ancient protocol uh, with a lot of time to study its various intricacies, sometimes uh, actually uh, implemented through very old equipment, right? It's not just about the protocol, it's the equipment that it's actually used with. So that creates a really interesting uh, uh, surface to, to go after. And in contrast to the internet, which is constantly uh, subjected to scrutiny, right? Where we've had, we've iterated over security uh, of uh, IP networks for decades now, right? Through constant back and forth. You just don't have that with military networks, right? Because nobody even thought about the cybersecurity of Link 16 since, you know, forever up until the last few years. So really we're, we're just now trying to shoehorn it back into a positively ancient protocol used in aging platforms across a range of countries and operators. I can only imagine what a nightmare it is to actually secure it properly. So if you look at the conflict, potential conflict, hopefully one that will never come to pass, uh, between China and the United States over, let's say, Taiwan, how do you think uh, the cyber dimension of that conflict would be different, if so, from what we're seeing today in, in Ukraine? So I'm actually uh, genuinely concerned about this, first of all, because, I mean, we're talking about a, an absolutely enormous modern military force that's uniquely preparing for a singular scenario, um, but also that... Uh, I think one of the lessons that we need to learn from Russia versus Ukraine, that not all lessons may transfer. And we're talking about two very different adversaries with two very different doctrines and strategies bringing to bear. Uh, and one thing you can certainly say about China is that it, it studies its adversaries and prepares quite meticulously. On the other hand, um, they lack the sort of on-the-ground operational experience, uh, just the sheer force of uh making a lot of mistakes on the battlefield that is actually really useful. So there are a few really large question marks that I'm concerned about, but I I do think that considering the forces at play, that cyber operations could play a much larger role potentially uh, in the context of a, of a Taiwan invasion. Because if we're thinking about what can happen, uh, we're talking about an amphibious invasion, right? One of the most uh, intricate, complex types of uh, military campaigns that one can undertake. And I would expect, were I to be the Chinese, that one of the things that you want to introduce is uh, delay in any kind of potential or assumed U.S. response to an invasion, right? Even two or three days can make a huge difference in the course of such a campaign. So if, if I were developing, you know, extensive access to uh, U.S. regional networks or satellite communication providers or uh, shipboard systems or military comm protocols, all those things, if you can create enough disruption that would prevent forces or a carrier strike group from arriving into the region for the first two, three days, that can make a huge difference, right? Or if you can uh, introduce disruption into the early stages of uh, Taiwanese defenses in a way that would allow you to um, 
establish that beachhead, which is one of the most difficult things to establish, right? A presence on Taiwanese shores uh, that can make a huge difference. It can also present opportunities for effects against China, which I genuinely hope the Taiwanese and the U.S. are preparing for. Uh, so the capacity to create some strategic effects against Chinese missile forces or telemetry or preparation or command and control in those early stages could also be significant. So, because the Chinese, of course, are in many ways emulating our own weapons platforms and building uh, similar types of systems that are highly networked. Absolutely. And they uh, they definitely emulate a lot of it. And I have not seen, uh, they don't publish a lot about this, of course, so it's, it's hard to say what they have. But they do tend to rip off a lot in the name of expediency. But on the flip side, it also means that they have uh, extensive access to um, our own military equipment architecture and networks and software that's associated with it. We know of many breaches that they've carried out against U.S. defense contractors. So they probably have good familiarity with how that stuff works, right? So I'm concerned for the conflict or potential conflict in general. I do think that there is a far more significant potential for cyber operations. I would never promise this is where cyber war is going to happen. But if we're talking about potential uh, strategic consequences, I think that's one scenario where it could if done right. And, uh, of course, that means that uh, while the pundits were completely wrong in proclaiming that every future war will be a cyber war, it doesn't mean necessarily that uh, some future wars will not have significant cyber components to them. Yeah, and one of the things that I am always amused by is how we are always surprised, right? Stuxnet happened, and we were surprised. Even even in in oh eight and oh seven, like the the uh, Russian campaigns against Estonia and Georgia, when they did like what were pretty really lame attacks uh, in the cyber front, everybody was surprised, and it prompted this massive response. And then uh, Ukrainian energy grid attacks happened, and we were surprised. We keep getting surprised. None of it is truly surprising if you read the tea leaves and look at what's out there. This is, again, all a question of expectations and delivering against them. So you can have a much larger uh, capacity for cyber operations. The question, it is difficult to execute and do well, but uh, we're not going to see, in my mind, a conflict that's entirely cyber, but we're, we also shouldn't discount the role that it might play. Well, that was Danny Moore. The book is titled Offensive Cyber Operations, Understanding Intangible Warfare. Danny, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.